2: World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his
0: upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember hashtag Chefs for Ukraine.
3: Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Max Sussman.
4: And I'm Kate McCabe.
3: We have two incredible guests on our show this week. Two people at the forefront of some topics that are really near and dear to our heart. We have Dan Saladino and Sally Barnes on the show.
4: So we first heard about Dan Saladino's book from Sally Barnes, who is a friend of ours and is also the co-host of our Wild West Cork food tour coming up in October. Sally is the last wild Irish fish smoker in Ireland and runs a smokehouse called Woodcock Smokery in West Cork.
3: Dan Saladino is the author of Eating to Extinction, and he's a renowned food journalist. He's worked at the BBC for 25 years. Eating to Extinction records stories of foods at risk of extinction, from cheeses of the Balkan region to rice grown in southern China and everything in between. It's a really incredible book, and... What I really liked about it was how many unique stories there are throughout the book. Each chapter is quite short, and so I think it's really easy to get through and beautifully written. Uh, And we're so excited to be able to bring Dan and Sally together for a chat.
4: So Dan's book talks about all sorts of rare foods that are on the brink of extinction, from dairy products to animals to fruits and vegetables. Dan features Sally Barnes and uh, Woodcock Smokery in his chapter about wild Atlantic salmon. Dan talks a little bit about the work that Sally's doing in West Cork to preserve wild fish and wild fish only. So we are really excited to get both of them in the same room together to talk.
3: We are super excited to share it with you here. So without further ado, here is our show. thank you both for being on the show. Um, first question is actually for Dan. A lot of people think that our current food system works in the sense that it creates an incredible amount of choices for consumers. But from reading your book, an alternative narrative might emerge in which thousands of species have been reduced just a handful. So what have we lost in the quest to globalize and industrialize our food system? And how might this alternative narrative um be communicated to people
5: Mm. and i I think a lot of people will be thinking that we are surrounded by an abundance of diversity And, and on one level that that's true but i would make three arguments uh one um in the book i'm really digging deep into the the building blocks the foundations of the food system so i'm i'm talking about things like the the seed industry and the diversity within the crops uh, that we consume. So uh, nine out of the 6,000 edible domesticated plants feed the world and just three, uh, wheat, rice and maize, corn, uh, provide more than 50% of the calories. And within those crops, uh, those grains, that the genetic diversity has been reduced um significantly with the focus on yield. So, so that that's one point. Secondly, um the same type of diversity is spreading around the world. So um diets are becoming more um similar, uh homogenous, um and you know and I talk about the consolidation of, of various parts of the food system. So one in uh, four beers drunk around the world is is brewed by one company under different brands obviously but again there's huge corporate consolidation and uh, again you know crops being grown in one part of the world as monocultures that are then said sold around the world so you know take bananas the cavendish banana or avocados for example And then the third point really is that a lot of the diversity that fills the supermarket chains, and this is a familiar idea, is an industrialized form of diversity, and that is taking some of those commodity crops such as wheat or maize, processing them and turning them into um, this array of choice that actually at the very essence at the very heart of uh that that kind of food is pretty much similar ingredients again Uh, what we're losing because of the dominance of of um that genetic genetic uniformity and dietary um, homogeneity is all of the foods that have evolved and, and adapted to different parts of the world over thousands and thousands of years so as the main crops that feed the world, traveled around the world from their centers of origin. So wheat in the Fertile Crescent, maize uh, from southern Mexico, rice from uh, central China. They adapted and evolved to to, uh, meet the needs of different ecosystems and also cultural uh, preferences. And that's the really important genetic resource that's disappearing. And in losing that, we lose resilience because of the adaptation of those crops to to their various environments. Um, We've become extremely dependent on inputs. Energy is in the news right now as we're having this conversation. Uh, That food system that's created that uniformity is heavily dependent on inputs such as fossil fuels, fertilizers, for example. So we've created, you know, this uniformity, um, lack of genetic diversity, and huge amounts of fragility.
4: One of the stories that stood out to me was the um, the wild fruit forests in Kazakhstan, and I had not, I didn't know that um, that was where apples originated from. I didn't realize that there was kind of a corporate controlling interest, maybe um, for lack of a better phrase, mm. behind the Apple market. You know, that would be something that would affect somebody who is an omnivore or a vegetarian or a vegan, um, you know, mm. that you might not know about when you're at the grocery store.
5: Yeah. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really interesting story because um, certainly in Victorian uh, Britain, it was possible to eat a different apple every day for four years, and not eat the same apple twice. There was that much diversity. And on one level, you could argue that um, the system that we've created uh, you know is it's a success story in some part because you know it's be, it's become possible for me to have an apple a day whatever the the time of year um and you know clearly we've exchanged diversity um for a for a form of abundance but again you you've hinted at some of the fragility in the system and and, and there are two two things i'd point to one is kazakhstan and the fruit forests um that is one of the world's uh, important genetic resources for a globally important food, the apple. So everything the apple has been and can be comes from that gene pool in those forests. And it's, and it's the same um, with every other crop we consume, that there are centres of origin where the wild ancestors of um, the, most, the world's most important crops exist if we If we destroy or lose some of that wild diversity, we really do lose a safety net for the future so for example, with wheat um you know we have government funded projects underway at the moment uh it, looking at the wild ancestors of wheat because that's where the traits we will need for the future in terms of disease uh resistance uh tolerance to pests and and drought will be found, are being found. And it's the same with the apple as well. But um, all of the, f- the apple varieties you've mentioned, they're almost as if they are cousins. That they, they, What the apple industry has, has done is that they've looked at the apples that can travel very well, can be kept for a very long time and be, can, can be grown in um, different parts of the world uh, under similar conditions. And that's the reason why they are so... Similar genetically, and they are the product of breeding programs in which you take one of the big sellers and you combine it with another apple, and you come up with this superficial level of diversity. Um, and so we've lost so much of this genetic resource, but also we've lost, you know, again, if you think about that diversity that that people just a few generations ago were enjoying, and not only enjoying but understanding, they understood which apple would arrive at what point in the season. Which one would keep well? Which one would be would could be used for different purposes? And again, it's our relationship um, with these foods as well that is (laughs) it's been undermined and we've become disconnected. Uh, And that's that's why I wrote the book. It's to really try and explain that this diversity exists in forms that we we don't even realise today, and actually generations before understood that diversity, and in that diversity they had at least some kind of Local or regional resilience in their food systems I think something
3: that comes out um, when you look into this topic in your book and, and in general is really how recent re- a lot of these changes are in terms of the industrialization of our food system. and um I was wondering if you could kind of put that into perspective and talk about how how recent some of these changes are and versus the timescales at which a lot of this diversity was. Uh, was allowed to be created and also um, Sally I wonder if you could also talk about how recent some of the changes are that you've seen in in your work in terms of the salmon fisheries uh, that you work with as well
5: Mm. well shall I start by just providing a bit of context of of the timescales I use in the book and then Sally can pick up Brilliantly, because I think I think Sally's is such an important story uh, in, in in answering that question. But I use multiple timeframes in the in the book to try and explain how we how diversity came into existence, uh, how how it spread, uh, and uh, you know how people used it, and then how quickly it's been lost. So, for example, you know I go back three three and a half billion years in the book to talk about the um, you know the, the the arrival and the evolution of um, of uh, your plants, and uh, and then eventually animals, obviously that that then um, gives us um, the wild grasses that become our crops, for example. So I, I'm, it's important that we understand how long it took for diversity to emerge. Then I talk about also the some of the um, important food, food stories that are linked to our own evolution as a species, and there are some stories that. Um, For example, uh, the way humans in Africa interact with birds to find sources of honey, which possibly goes back as a relationship a million years to the arrival of fire and smoke. And then, um, you know, uh, Homo sapiens, 300,000 years, the most successful lifestyle to date, based on that 300,000 years of evolution, is as hunter-gatherers. And then 12,000 years, the arrival of agriculture and settlements, and then eventually civilization and cities. and and um, But in, in that massive timescale that I'm, I'm referring to there of how our foods came into existence, just 150 years of pretty much an industrialization of food systems, of people leaving the land, and actually science and technology coming to the fore in our efforts to override every natural system uh, possible, that our ancestors had to work with in greater harmony. And the book isn't against or it isn't anti-science or anti-technology. It's basically saying that there are complex systems that we still don't even understand. And uh, I also talk about the domestication of animals, which follows shortly after the uh, domestication of the wild grasses and the legumes that give us the likes of wheat, barley and um, and lentils and, and, and so forth. But with that domestication of of animals, um, we do we we went on the same journey of selecting and selecting and selecting and breeding to the point where we narrowed down the genetic base so that the U.S. dairy industry now is ninety five percent one breed of cow, which is the Holstein Friesian, which is a problem in terms of that again risky genetic diversity. That domestication event with animals, livestock, happened. Um, you know, around 7,000, 8,000 years ago. Um, what Sally's working with is fascinating because obviously as somebody working with wild Atlantic salmon, um, our, our, the world has been changed and is changing because of aquaculture as a source of food. And what we're seeing is a domestication proce- process in real time with the wild Atlantic salmon. Yeah, in in the space of just a few decades.
6: I concur totally with everything you've said, but, you know, working with wild salmon now for 45 years, when I first started, when I first came to live here in 1975, 76, the salmon runs then were phenomenal. The rivers were still pristine. It was um, a year or so before Ireland acceded to the EU. And in exchange for 95% of the fish in Irish waters, because the negotiators were primarily farmers, land-based politicians, um, Ireland gave away 95% of the potential stock in Irish waters to the European Union uh, in exchange for agricultural subsidies. So, you know, four years after we acceded to the European Union, all of a sudden the, the, the numbers of fish returning started to collapse because the rivers were being polluted. You know, the chemicals were being applied mm, kind of willy-nilly. You know, it says use 5 mil, I'll use 10, it'll be more effective. A, a little bit of that went on, so our rivers became corrupted. And, you know, it's, it's always been this thing that if the, if the, if the fresh water's not fit to, to, to maintain and retain a healthy population of wild fish, whether it's salmon or lampreys or horse muscles, whatever it is, then it's not fit for humans, you know, and we're 73% water. And I know water is going to be another major problem for the planet and everything that lives on it in the years to come. But I I found it extraordinary and and very depressing that from 1979 was the best, you know, the last best year of returning salmon. It's a four-year cycle. So the fish that were trying to come back and find their rivers in 1980, 1981, the chemical smell of that body of water had changed because of the inputs that were washing off the land. So yeah, it's quite frightening. Actually, it's very frightening. Um, you know, we using all these chemicals hasn't just polluted the water. We've got fewer and fewer bees. You know, I I I live in a bit of wilderness. I keep my little patch very wild, and I saw. Last year, I probably saw a handful of honeybees, a few bumblebees. I see a lot of dead bumblebees. You you know, all these things are kind of sinister because you think, oh, that's a small thing. There's a dead bee. And then when you see maybe 30 of them in the space of a week in one small area, you realize, no, this this is quite serious. Maybe I'm ranting and raving. Well,
4: one, you know, sort of a follow-up question that I have, um, you know, for both of you, going back to this idea we were talking about earlier about illusion of choice is, you know, when I hear you talking about salmon and about the depletion of salmon, I just don't think that a lot of consumers realize that some of the alternatives that they're being offered, um, let's say to use salmon as an example, um, are actually helping to speed up the extinction of the wild species.
6: Yep. Fair comment, very fair comment. I've just been reading a couple of new reports about the, the 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 average size of of the wild salmon, the ones that are left, is diminishing. And over the years, when I read it first, I thought oh, that's because they're picking out particular size of fish with the mesh size that the commercial men are using. But they've Norwegian scientists have now decided that that's not the case. The case is that because so much wild fish has been taken to make pellets for the fish that are contained in cages, that the wild fish are not getting enough feed, basically. So they're not growing to their full potential because human activity, in order to pump... Uh, fish through fish farms and, and carnivorous fish is is absorbing an awful lot of the potential wild food. The other problem with that is because we've been pumping the sea full of so many nasty toxins over the the last number of decades, um, the, the pollution levels in those little fish is then consolidated when you shrink it down and make a fifth of the weight of what's been taken from the sea as fresh wild bait fish. When that's consolidated down into pellet, then the the amplification of the toxins is obviously increased quite dramatically. Um, uh, And to call it a sustainable activity just breaks my heart. It's not sustainable on any level, unless we're talking economics and shareholder sustainability. But it's not good for any of the bays in this country to have them packed with farms that create eutrophied seabeds underneath them and, you know, they're breeding grounds for the lice, but, you know, hey, we'll just spray them with something. It, the whole thing's... We've gone off, off in a wrong, wrong, wrong direction entirely. Mm. I mean, I, I, I,
5: I think, um, for me, when I was researching and writing the book, I think the salmon really did come away as being one of the most important and interesting, revealing stories. Uh, and And I think that's partly because... Uh, as I mentioned, that you know, so many of the uh, sources of animal protein in our lives have this really long you know, history of domestication over thousands of years, and the salmon is one that's just happened in in the in the space of two generations. And so that you know this idea that an industry um, was created in Norway, uh, starting with experiments in the 1960s, where they were taking wild salmon from rivers and then trying to find uh, and actually breed in a short space of time um a fish that could convert more feed than the wild uh fish and actually grow more quickly um and and so it's it's a rare thing you know a kind of a domestication event in our in our recent lifetimes and that's and and that's reflected in in a, in our food experiences as well. When I was growing up, I mean, food was almost an unobtainable fish as a as a source of food. It was a, you know extremely rare source of food. Um, and in in the space of a few short years, it's become the one of the most common sources of animal protein as well. So again, that idea, as with the Green Revolution and the way our crops changed of this ability to use science and technology um, to turn on this this newfound abundance. But the salmon is also important because uh, of its incredible life cycle of starting off as a freshwater fish and then, you know, two or three years, I think, after it, it, its body changes so it can go into the sea and then swim to the feeding grounds further north in the Atlantic. And what I try and tell is this, Kind of story that unfolds uh, that unfolds across many, many hundreds of important rivers across Europe, um, in which there used to be a salmon culture a century ago, and there no longer is and it's it's an important fish because it reflects what we 've done on land, uh, as Sally has mentioned, and what we also do out at sea. So on land we dammed the rivers, we had industries. Uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, that um, polluted rivers heavily, and that continues actually longer. But there were, you know, parts of Ireland, for example, that were really heavily impacted by textile industries, poisoning the rivers for the fish. As as Mark Kalansky uh, said in his uh, recent book on the salmon, to save the world, all we need, you know, to 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 save the salmon, all we really need to do is to save the world, to save the planet, because you know, again, it's like the and this might not be the right um, uh, kind of metaphor, but you know, it's the canary in the mine. The salmon
6: is showing us what we are doing to the yep. planet. Sure is, yeah. I when they first started the farming, um, they found after about, I suppose, 15 or 20 years of sending Norwegian smolts to different European countries, like Scotland or wherever, um, when those fish escaped from the cages, <laughs> such was their genetic um, hardwiring, that an awful lot of them went back to the rivers in Norway where their progenitors would have come from. And I remember it was probably in the very early 80s a report that said that up to 85% of the salmon returning to specific rivers in Norway were SKPs from farms. Not all around Norway. You know, they they they'd get out in Scotland and go off oh, taking the wrong time somewhere. And and genetically they were so hardwired to return to a very specific um region, whether they do that with um, the earth's magnetic fields or whether they're following currents, the jury's still out a bit on that one. no, but I, th-
5: I think I think what what it, what it does illustrate is how complex and interconnected this is so it isn't it isn't just down to one pressure that's leading to uh, and in the case of the um, North Atlantic salmon, I mean, it most definitely is endangered and has already gone extinct from some river systems um it's this complex array of different pressures bearing down on on the natural world and again we thought that we could find a fix i mean many of the people i spoke to in my research for the book who actually work in the aquaculture industry and salmon farming went they were motivated to go into the industry because they saw wild populations declining so they actually see salmon farming as a way in which they can take pressure off um the wild species but clearly you know th- th- this is a story in which um you know as with um crop breeding other forms of animal breeding we come up with one big solution and actually it's far more complicated
6: and has some knock on effects that we we didn't expect um to put a more positive spin on things because we could i mean we could be negative totally um in a lot of the North American systems where fast nations have been given the, the, the permission, for want of a better word, to get dams removed on different rivers there. I know they spent billions of dollars trying to rehabilitate the fish in the rivers without really paying much attention to the fact that if you remove the obstructions to those creatures, then you're getting somewhere. It doesn't take an awful lot to, for the natural world to bounce back if we stop pushing it. If we step back, took the dams out, there was one particular river system in North America, and it's forgotten which one it was, forgive me. But they, they um, took dams out, and I think they were talking about stocking rivers with steelhead trout, another salmonid. They didn't have to. They discovered when they went to assess the populations of steelhead in this river system where they'd removed some of the dams and some of the obstructions, that the fish had repopulated themselves because the river was clean, Um, the the water was accessible to the fish. I think we just have to start putting our heads into um, animal brains and uh, fish brains instead of it being humans whose really our interest in all this is the moolah. It's the ching-ching at the end of it all whereas we just need to start addressing all these fellow dwellers on this planet with a hell of a lot more respect.
3: Sally, I was wondering if you could um describe your work and what you do
6: for the listener who might not be familiar with it. Right. Um well I think I think for a while I've been viewed as being a bit on the lunatic fringe because I because I was married to a commercial fisherman um and had access to the salmon. I mean initially he was fishing for them and I was helping with the marketing, you know, driving down to the boat at night with small child in the car and loading up with a fish, meeting the buyer, all that things that girls do that's part and parcel of the business, so i I buy wild fish only because I'd been married to a commercial fisherman. I know how important that money coming in through the door is, so I thought, well, if I can. Enhance and preserve the fish for a bit longer, because, like all things from nature when nature's left to its own devices um i was i I live in quite a remote part of West Cork there's very little employment for women here that would be normal you know, you were farmer's wife or fisherman's wife um or you went into nursing or teaching and so um that wasn't an option for me. I had two small children, and I thought, well. I could do something with this fish. How did we do it before? We used to smoke it to preserve that bounty from Mother Nature when she threw it at us. We knew how to preserve it. We could pickle, we could dry, we could smoke. We could, yeah, you know, sugar it and make jam. Um, so we, we developed all those techniques over millennia uh, and, and then we gave away control of that to bigger operations, I knew because I was going to work only with the wild fish because I'd been observing the farmed fish coming onto the market at that stage. Uh, initially, when they put the fish in the cages, the female fish would, you know, grow to about five pounds of weight, five and a half pounds of weight, eat the food, happy out. But then, when physically those female fish were ready to start the ascension or they returned to the fresh water and the ascension up the river to the, to the, to the reds where they would lay, lay their eggs. The fish weren't able to get out of the cages, so they stopped feeding and they started to die. They would reabsorb the eggs. They weren't putting on weight, which is what the farmers wanted. So <coughs> human solution, we'll put male hormone in because the male fish didn't do that. So when I started reading that, I thought, oh, for God's sake. There's more than enough hormone interference in our foods. Um, so I thought, no, I'm not interested in this this fish, which is not a salmon. It's, it's a carnivorous fish which has been kept in a cage kind of against its will. Also because I'm remote and isolated and not everybody wants to come and get wet, cold hands and deal with fish blood and blah, blah, blah. So... Um I elected to stick with the wild fish, knowing full well how variable uh, catches are year on year. fisherman's wife, we know all about this. There are seasonalities, um but you can't predict them, so there was no point in starting a business where you were going approaching big retailers and saying, "Oh, I've got this wild salmon smoked for sale. Would you like it? Because you know, if they came back and asked for a hundred sides a week, God forgive you um. You wouldn't be able to come up with it, and then you just look silly. So keep it small. So I buy now, if I can get them, 350 wild salmon in the fishing season, which is very constrained. It starts in the middle of May. It's very seriously controlled, patrolled, um, lots of inspectors, lots of time spent on rivers watching what the fishermen are doing. Um, They're under a very strict quota now, and this year I'm really depressed because their quota has dropped 700 fish on the one river that I'm buying from, from just over 1,700 fish to barely over 1,000 fish this year. Now, that's the commercial men. As soon as their 1,063 tags once they've been applied to the fish, that's their season finished. They're not staying out all night. They're not going miles and hundreds of miles offshore, Come on, you know, industrial fishing. Those are the guys that I started my maturation process with. They were the ones who would be leaving at 3 o'clock in the morning. they would be back on the pier at 7 o'clock at night. That fish is ready for sale. That's day boat fishing, which is what you want. Um so those fish come out of the river into the boat, taken straight up to their facility, where they're individually weighed. They're tagged on the boat because if they brought them ashore without a tag, they could be arrested it's It's that serious the patrolling um and then the fish are immediately wrapped in film and frozen they They haven't even developed rigor mortis by the time they they're they're frozen down so. They're the fish to work with, they're fresh.
1: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet tree lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com.
2: Are you a business owner? this spring amplify your business and support hrn's mission by becoming a business member hrn is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant with a 500 dollars business membership hrn can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food as a thank you for this tax-deductible donation your business will receive on-air mentions social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash biz.
4: Dan, one of the things that struck me while reading your book is how many of these foods are being protected or um, we're at one point saved from extinction by um, one individual, or maybe by a family in a particular area. Um, you know, on the one hand, it feels empowering. This idea that as an individual, um, you can make you know such a meaningful change. Um, but commendable as that is, it's really ultimately not sustainable. So, I-, I was just wondering if you could comment on the role of individuals like people like Sally Barnes, who are um, who are doing this in mm. in certain
5: areas yeah and i and i think um when i when i talk about endangered foods and i've, I've talked a lot in in our conversations so far about the the genetic resources the, the the legacy um our inheritance of thousands of years of farming um by our ancestors but at the same time i i, I also talk a lot in the book about skills and knowledge and that for me is what sally represents really is that um you know taking a fish from the wild and then really being able to read the body and almost be able to you know imagine the journey it's been on over these vast distances out at sea and then to develop this system of preserving it and actually accentuating the you know flavors in the fish as well and again you know it, it's taken <laughs> countless generations uh to develop that knowledge and pass it through and for sally to pick it up and to um to really hone it so that she is now one of the most celebrated and well-known smokers um in the uk and, and no doubt far beyond uh and i i was um told about sally by a a, a chef in london called richard corrigan who comes from Ireland originally and we were talking about the um the wild atlantic salmon and his childhood memories of encountering the fish perhaps you know a couple of times a year and again it being something that would stun the family into silence as they sat around a table to eat the fish and for him it, it's almost as if Sally is the is the beacon really of what remains of that that tradition and and that skill uh, of taking something from the wild and turning it into something that could sustain people for a very long time, particularly when other food sources run out, which is why, obviously, we, it was so important that, we, you know, as humans, we develop these skills to preserve foods. And, uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, can individuals make a difference? I, you know, I, there are stories in the book that, that, that show that they can. Um, there's a, a German farmer I talk about in the book called Waldmammel, uh, who farms in southern Germany in the region Swa- region called Swabia um which is quite mountainous high altitude difficult place to farm but uh world mammals uh um ancestors survived there by uh with crop rotation so that they had a a a plant that they prized for its flavor uh for the way it enabled them to survive and live uh, and this was the most humble um it, it, plant imaginable humble ingredient food source imaginable which is the lentil and this lentil which had obviously originated in the fertile crescent had found its way over thousands of years along the danube river and neolithic farmers had introduced it to europe um in swabia that was um a crop that enabled them to have a source of protein to fertilize the soil and actually to do um, crop rotation so they could grow wheat or barley. It went extinct in the 1960s for various reasons, you know, Germany industrializing, Canada switching on a global commodity supply of lentils, lots of reasons why it went extinct. But he was determined to bring it back and felt that it it wasn't that they just lost a seed and a, and a crop, but they'd lost a way of life. And he searched everywhere for for 10 years to find the lentil that used to grow in farms around him and came up with nothing. No seed bank had it. So he decided to travel to Russia and go to the um, Vavilov Institute, where he thought they might have something that was similar to his Swabian lentil. And actually, they had the lentil, but it had been filed under the wrong name. And there's a picture of him online with his arms raised with a group of other farmers in Russia celebrating the fact that they'd found their uh, lentil. He brought it back to Germany. Now more than 200 farmers are growing that lentil, Uh, predominantly organic farming systems, crop rotation. They've developed new forms of technology to sift through these crops as well. They've got this dish, their traditional dishes back as well. Not only that, he inspired in turn farmers in Sweden to look back at what had been growing in their region uh, in terms of beans and peas. And their story then made its way to England uh, and was picked up by three food policy researchers who then established a business um, called Hodmerdodds, which is now bringing back ancient legumes that used to be grown in Britain during the Iron Age, including fava beans. So individuals do matter in that they they are, you know, they save skills and knowledge, as in Sally's case, but also with the German farmers story. Um, they can be defenders of genetic resources that could transform farming systems across a continent, as is happening in Europe with these with these um fava beans and lentils and pulses that people are rediscovering. The most healthy food imaginable
6: and one in which we're feeding your yep. soil. Brilliant. Again. The power of one. <laughs> The power of a well the power of one individual (laughs) as well. If you have that passion, then then anything is possible. You know, when I came first, everybody around the coast of this country had salmon during the season. Everybody. And the season then was mid-March through till September when the weather broke. So, you know, they'd be boats drifting for salmon for that amount of time every year. So everybody ate wild salmon. And in fact, um, individuals who were indentured to different trades had signed contracts where they wouldn't have to eat salmon more than three times a week. There was a scientist called Dr. Piggins who, in the 1920s, reported that salmon was a verminous fish. Still so prolific were they in the rivers. They were poor people's food. They're supposed to be like oysters, you know? <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. <laughs> when we do, during the summer now, now that I'm reversed, I'm going more and more into the teaching end of things, we decided the first year that we opened the keep that we should do a celebration of the wild salmon. We'll have a wild salmon day. So we cooked for 28 individuals, uh, oh, two sittings. Um, we cooked fresh wild salmon with new potatoes, sea spinach harvested from the beach. And there were individuals there who felt so moved because your body responds. We've got sensors in our bodies that are familiar with wild salmon protein because so many generations of us ate it, that there's, there are sensors in our bodies that recognize it when we eat it. And I still get a bang when I eat a piece of wild salmon and I can feel what it's doing. One individual at the table stood up at the end and he said, this has brought my grandfather back. He's been dead for many years now. But when we were children, we would come to granddad's in the summer um, to stay and we would eat boiled wild salmon, which is the way that I cooked it. And Max, who works with me, was saying, oh, we need a sauce. And I said, no, we won't, Max. We're going to taste the salmon. We don't want to taste the sorrel sauce or the, the capers. We want to have pure wild salmon.
3: As a chef, I've been basically accustomed to looking at food and ingredients from a sort of very end user perspective. You're looking at quality, consistency, cost. Reading the book in particular, I was really struck by how many of the ingredients that I'm familiar with as a chef actually used to be considered byproducts and how raising uh, animals used to be more about providing for certain resources in the community, how fish farming started off as a way to protect crops from uh, against pests and how uh, lamb was raised for wool. And, And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how can we sort of, Reclaim that holistic and multi-purpose relationship with the foods that we eat.
5: People over such a long span of time saw these animals um, for so much more than you know a a source of food. So, in the case of pigs, you know they would be integrated into a family uh, farming system in, say, for example, in in southern China, in which. You know they would be fed waste, and they would almost be storing up food um, over the year, and it would be an, an emergency source of of protein. And likewise with the um, sheep, which I tell the story of the of, of mutton on the Faroe Islands. So this idea that it's only in relatively recent times that we started to eat young animals such as lamb, um, and and the on the Faroe Islands impossible to have survived. On those islands without the, the animals, and the humans couldn't eat the pasture. there were barely any trees, so they couldn't make fires to make to create salt to preserve other forms of food. Um, so they had the sheep converting the pasture uh, that the, the, the um, sheep gave them wool, which was a m- huge source of income. Um, and when the, the animal was old enough and reaching the end of its life, they would slaughter it and then hang it in these huts where the, the salt air from the North Atlantic would blow in through the gaps in the, in the shed and slowly ferment and preserve this meat so that it could be eaten in small amounts and again get them through the, you know, the, the depths of winter and through the hungry gap as well. So, I mean, what those stories represent to me is, is this, um, this kind of reverence that our ancestors must have had for these animals, this um, connection with them, because they saw them as a, as, as a means of survival and of so much more. And, and what we've done is we've taken the animal out of these, again, complex systems, whether it's small mixed farming or whether it's you know surviving in the harsh conditions of the North Atlantic, and we've put them into these silos for the, for the sole purpose of providing us with 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 protein, and what do we get? well we, we you know I tell the story in China of um, African swine fever decimating the you know the almost half the world's pigs in 2018, and also you know outbreaks of avian flu that we see uh, ripping through um, very large intensive poultry systems. And again, we've created these extremely high risk risk systems because we've extracted something that fits into a system and we've put it into an artificial one with great intensity, uh, high dense populations of of animals that that are causing us risks beyond the welfare issues, which clearly are are really important. But again, in that big picture about resilience, and we believing uh, us believing that we've we are so clever in in our approach to food production that we've come up with this amazing system of producing these incredibly cheap um sources of meat well again it's such a short period in in our food history it's barely a blip and we don't even know where this experiment is going to lead us and it's pretty flavorless meat
6: i mean you, you know really
5: yeah, mutton. If you think about the mutton as well. I mean, it was prized as in, in Britain a mm-hmm. century ago. And it was only when, and again, because of empire and the fact that we could then start to have huge amounts of lamb from um, Australia, for example. Uh, so global trade networks enable us to replace this system where we used to have older animals. And actually, they would have a really distinctive taste that was prized and understood. So it's that idea that we've lost our senses in a way—you know, our palate for meat. And there are stories in the book I talk, talk about wheat in in parts of eastern Turkey where they prize a wheat because of its flavor. Now, how many of us can say we we actually can you know have any reference point when it comes to the flavor of wheat? So I think there is so much that's become commodity, and and we we've and we've devalued it so much that it's become fuel and a highly expensive fuel That that because again these costs that we're building up in terms of our health and planetary health
6: when you were talking about the apples dan um there were i, I knew a very elderly man who had huge orchards in devon when he was young and a frost did him in and then the granny smiths did him in you know commodities again. Um, he was telling me that specific apples were grown because they would be designed, God, if you can call it designed, their purpose was that this specific type of apple would be really good to eat fresh, fresh, would be much better to eat after it'd been stored for maybe six months in a shed. You know, if you ate it straight off the tree, you would be missing the complex flavors that would develop when the fruit was allowed to sit. For a number of months so you know you would have your fruit that you'd have to eat almost directly off the tree because it wasn't a keeping apple but there were apples that would be perfect for eating three months after harvest four months after harvest so when you were talking about apples that you could store that you would eat over a two-year period they may well have been picked two years before but they came to palate, uh determined uh peak maybe two years after they'd been harvested. We've lost all those abilities to be able to understand our food on that level. You know, we go into a shop, we buy a bag of apples, and we're going to eat them in the next week or two. We're not interested in the the nuances of specific types of apples that need that time. And I think that can be applied to all sorts of foods. Mm. Yeah. I mean again it it appears we've gained yeah. so much but we've lost yes.
5: so much. I mean I think that's the that's mm-hmm. the thing and again the apple the most simple of foods but that you know there were people in the 1920s who were writing about apples the way most people would, you know many people write about wine. You know I think there was that appreciation and that understanding and the expectation of the seasons changing. Um you know, and I think losing that is, is extremely dangerous. And, you know, this disconnection, this disconnect with nature really is what we're talking yeah. about. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you know, again, it can be seen by many as a success story of having this continuous supply of food from all around the world all year long, have whatever you want whenever you want it. Um, but, I th- you know, I, we, we're waking up to the fact that that is not going to be possible shouldn't be possible. And not only that, it's just that we've lost that sense of wonder at something as simple as an apple.
3: Um, Well, this was a really fascinating conversation. And we wanted to thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us and with each other. And um, perhaps we could sign off each of you with letting our listeners know a little bit more how to follow you and also get involved in some of these issues, because I think that people will come away from this conversation, you know, wanting to get involved and wanting to participate and make some change on these topics.
6: Read Dan's book, (laughs) (laughs) read Dan's book, eating to extinction. I think it should be compulsory reading in all schools. This is where we've got to go get into the education system. There's a, there's a drive here at the moment to bring cooking skills back into the national curriculum because i think that's a major part of this disconnect children are totally disconnected from their food it you know food comes out the freezer in the supermarket and they there's such joy and pleasure in cooking and preparing your own food knowing what you're putting in your body if you put diesel in your petrol car it's not going to be happy and i see food um in a kind of similar way, and I think it's a it's one way of getting that that's a message across to young people that you've you if you want the machine to function properly, you've got to put the right materials in it.
5: And I don't want people to think it's all about doom and gloom. Uh, you know that the stories are full of wonder and the ingenuity of humans over time in giving us the food we have today, and yet at the same time, what's being lost. And I think there are ways in which, as individuals, through our own decisions, our own choices, with the with the knowledge and the information to help save diversity. Even better, do it at a community level. We've been talking about apples. There are community orchards around me where I live, where people are preserving diversity um, as a community effort. And then maybe you should even be thinking about lobbying your local school and and the way in which they make decisions about you know contracts. Um, with food companies or even better farmers to actually um, help save diversity, which is exactly what's happened in parts of, the, parts of Europe, such as uh, Copenhagen, where they have built into contracts this idea that diversity will be rewarded if you give us um, more varieties. We will reward you, they say to farmers in, in some of the produce they buy in. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I think step one, know the story. And uh, I'd love if people do come across the book and read it, I'd love to have their feedback and they can find me on I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Dan Saladino UK um, on Twitter and then just Dan Saladino on on Instagram. I'd love to hear um, some of the feedback to this conversation and and also, um, you know, if people read some of the stories.
3: Great. And Sally, what's the best way to find you on social media?
6: Oh well, I am rubbish on social media, (laughs) as you've probably realised. I do have an Instagram account. My business is called Woodcock Smokery. Um, I've got a very very nice website: www.woodcocksmokery.com, all one word, all lowercase. And I'm now going to focus on um, teaching um, teaching people how to preserve fish, because I've worked in fish all this time. The, the techniques that I pass on can be applied to any kind of food stuff because wood smoke has antimicrobial properties. Salt has antimicrobial properties. These are ancient ways of preserving our foods. And Dan, you mentioned how our palates have changed. We want squishy baby lamb. We, we might not be so keen on the smell of mutton when it's cooking, but by God, it's going to satisfy so many more flavor buds when it's had time to mature and develop. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I can smoke meat and fish and cheese and poultry and anything else you want to bung in there. So I'm delighted to be hopefully encouraging more young people to become, yeah, aware of. So come and learn fish smoking skills and um, just, yeah, I, I live in a beautiful place. Dan, you'd be more than welcome. I'd love to see you at the door. I'll take you up on that, Sally. Great. I'll see you soon. Do, <laughs> do. I look forward to thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, yeah. Kate and, and yeah, thank Max. you. I appreciate Very it. Great conversation. Thank you both. Thank great you. To talk to you.
3: Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission it is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.
4: And if you liked what you heard today, don't forget to check out our Wild West Cork tour, which runs in late October and is co-hosted and has been co-curated by Sally Barnes.